So I think tonight's talk is one of my favorites, which is on the third noble truth, <coughs> the end of dukkha. And this bhikkhus, the Buddha from the Satipatthana Sutta, and this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the remainderless fading and cessation renunciation, relinquishment, and letting go of craving. Now, if you can remember from last night's talk, craving is the cause of dukkha. And so the ending of dukkha is the relinquishing, the letting go of craving. Now, this is a very clear and unambiguous statement of what frees the mind. This is not a confused matter. The Buddha is saying very clearly, the cessation of dukkha is the relinquishment and letting go of craving. But I think it's interesting for us to consider, can we even imagine that? Can we imagine a life, a mind free of craving? I think most of us resonate more closely with that famous prayer of St. Augustine, Dear Lord, please make me chaste, but not yet. (laughs) Please let me be free of craving, but not quite now. And I think that's what we want to look at in our lives. So how do we relate to this third noble truth? You know, and how can we begin to actualize it? On a retreat a few years ago, I was just sitting and I was reflecting on those lines I mentioned last night, the lines that came to the Buddha, you know, in the morning of his awakening, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. And while I was on retreat and thinking of these lines, I started reflecting on it just in a new way, in a way that I hadn't before. And rather than understanding craving as being some far off goal, you know, we work and work and work and 20 years, 30 years, five lifetimes, maybe we'll reach the end of craving. Or as being some special meditative state you know, state of non-craving that we try to hold on to. I also understood (laughs) the practice of the abandonment of craving, the letting go of craving, as a moment-to-moment practice. So it's not just something in the future. It's actually what we can be practicing now. When we explore in our, in our own experience the Buddha's declaration that the end of dukkha is in letting go of craving. We can see for ourselves, again, not taking this as Buddhist philosophy, but <clears throat> applying it to our own experience, we can see for ourselves how desire, the desire of wanting, you know, of craving, of clinging, we can see for ourselves how that obscures the natural ease, the natural openness, the natural peace of mind. And I had a a striking example of this, although there there were many examples. But this one particularly uh, stuck in my mind. It was some years ago. I was just visiting New York City and walking down Fifth Avenue and you look into all those nice stores and it's like I could just see my mind as I was passing all these these windows with all this beautiful stuff in it. Oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. Be... And I, I wasn't going to buy anything, but I was, it was appealing, you know, and I was, could see the desire in the mind. And it just happened a few weeks later, I was on this, back in New York, on the same street walking down And for whatever reason, there was no desire in the mind. And I remembered having been there a few weeks before, and I was comparing the mind states. And the difference was so clear. 
you know, when the mind was filled with desire, it was dukkha. There was a, there was a kind of uh, grasping energy and compared to the peace of not wanting. And I was open, I was seeing everything, I was engaged you know, in, in the world, but without that extra force of craving, of wanting. So I would suggest as an experiment, while you're here, if it should just happen to happen that a desire arises in the mind, sometime in the next few days, <laughs> really notice the desire in the mind. See if you can pay attention to what it feels like when the mind is wanting. It could be anything. It could be something you know, really small, wanting a cup of tea or whatever. Pay attention to the felt experience of wanting and then instead of acting on it, just be with it until it disappears, as it will, because it's impermanent like everything else. And watch that moment. Pay attention to the moment when it's no longer there. And right there, in the contrast between wanting and not wanting, you will have a momentary experience of the third noble truth. You will feel the peace of not craving, of not wanting. It feels like we've been let out of the grip of something. You know, when we're caught up in the craving, it's like we're held by the craving. And then it comes to an end. There's that sense of ease, that sense of relief. But we have to experience this, each one for ourselves. It's, It's not enough to know it intellectually. We have to internalize that understanding. Tulku Ergin, in the context of Tibetan Dzogchen teachings, he spoke frequently of practicing, recognizing, kind of the empty, aware nature of mind. He said, to practice it for short moments many times. And that phrase I found really helpful. And we can employ that strategy in our practice of not craving in our actualizing this noble truth. That's just a story came to mind. I was sitting at the forest refuge and I was reflecting on all this and realizing, yeah, desire just causes suffering. So I thought to myself, well, just don't desire anymore. (laughs) It seems desire is suffering, not desiring is not suffering. So just stop it. <laughs> I was I was kind of inspiring myself for you know a few moments, uh, and then I I happened to be wearing my favorite meditation sweatshirt. Uh, I love this sweatshirt; uh, it's really comfy. And about three minutes after, okay, no more desire. My mind said, "Gee, it would be nice to have this sweatshirt in different colors." <laughs> you know. Short moments, many times. <laughs> it's not that it's necessarily going to last for a long time, but we can keep coming back to it and seeing over and over again you know, the dukkha involved in wanting. So this is our practice. This is, how we, this is how we actualize the Buddha's teachings in our own experience. As you know, there are many... There are many Buddhist traditions and lineages and teachings. A lot of different methods, a lot of different vocabularies, a lot of different metaphysical explanations of things. But in all of the Buddhist traditions, there is a common understanding of what liberates the mind. So that is in common to all of them. Namely, liberation through non-clinging. And this is a phrase that is found often in the Pali texts. Liberation through non-clinging. There is no Buddhist tradition that says cling. (laughs) So we can trust this. We can trust that this is the vehicle 
of liberation. This is, this is how we accomplish it. There was a 19th century Tibetan Dzogchen master named Patrul Rinpoche. And he, he, was, he was really beloved by the, just the local common people, you know, the, the farmers and the country people. He was known as the enlightened vagabond. And he had some really useful words about, about this practice. And he called it advice from me to myself. Well, this is Patrul Rinpoche talking to himself. Listen up, old bad karma Patrul, you dweller in distraction. For ages now you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around about carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects, which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. <laughs> Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. Listen up, old. <laughs> Listen up, old bad karma, Joseph. <laughs> Let go of everything. It's the same teaching, you know. Whatever, whatever the tradition, whatever surrounds it, you know, all the all the surrounding uh, teachings. This is the essence. So the question for us is how can we practice, how can we cultivate, how can we put this into practice, this non-craving, non-clinging, first on a momentary level, and then in the end, as what the Buddha called the unshakable deliverance of the mind, the cessation of craving without remainder. But we start in the moment, we start where we are, we can practice and accomplish this non-clinging, non-craving <clears throat> in different ways. And different Buddhist traditions may highlight one or another of these methods. We've been practicing, and, <clears throat> and in the Pali text, the great emphasis is on deconditioning and relinquishing, abandoning craving through an increasingly refined awareness of the three characteristics. The more clearly we see the impermanence of all phenomena, the impermanence of all experience, the more we understand for ourselves not only the unreliability an ultimately unsatisfying nature of phenomena. But we can also see that when we crave, that which in its nature is going to change, we suffer. When we're clinging to that which in its very nature is going to change, it's so obvious that we will suffer when it does. If we are attached, if we're clinging to youth, how do we feel as we age? If we're clinging to health, how does it feel when we're ill? It's not that we shouldn't take care of ourselves, but the body at times will get ill and age and die. If we're clinging to it, staying a certain way, when it changes, as it inevitably will, then we suffer. 
craving is the source of suffering. So we should really <laughs> pay attention to this. <laughs> you know, it's so easy to hear these words. Oh yes, craving is the source of suffering, clinging is the source of suffering, and yeah, that's what the Buddha taught. But are we, are we really looking at how this is operative in our lives? That's when it's going to have transformative value. You know, when we see for ourselves, yes, when I'm clinging to something and it changes, we don't feel very good. You know, we, we struggle, we suffer. And that the ease is in non-clinging. <laughs> so this is our practice. This is what we have to be seeing. And then through a continued wise attention, we realize more deeply the impersonal, selfless nature of this whole process. But there's no one behind this process of change to whom it's happening. What we call self, conventionally, is the process of change. It's not that there's a self behind it who's experiencing it. We are this process of change, and within the process itself, nothing lasts long enough to be a self, because everything is changing so quickly. Just to give you an idea of how quickly changes are taking place on the most fundamental level of existence, Capturing the motion of an electron within an atom sounds like an impossible task. Not least because the shuffling of an electron between orbits or escaping the nucleus takes just attoseconds. It's A-T-T-O. That's the measure of time. Or a billionth of a billionth of a second. To put this in perspective... An attosecond, which is how they're measuring, you know, the movement of an electron, an attosecond is to a second, which, you know, we have some familiarity with, is what the blink of an eye is to 10 billion years. (laughs) I mean, it's... It's unfathomable. (laughs) Unfazed, scientists have lighted on ways to operate on such infinitesimal timescales. You know, so we're living on a conventional level of reality, but even just to know that, you know, our very bodies are just made up of atoms and nucleus and electrons, that's, that's what it's all made up of. And it's changing at that speed. Where is the self to be found in that? An attosecond is to a second what the blink of an eye is to 10 billion years. So, so if you practice real hard, <laughs> last night I spoke a bit of disenchantment as the precursor to awakening. That is, waking up from the dreamlike state of ignorance. So I had an interesting experience of this on a recent retreat. I've mentioned this in a couple of the groups I've had. Do you know the experience sometimes when you wake up in the morning and then kind of a thought crosses the mind, goes through the mind, and it kind of captures you, and you go back into a dream state for, you know, a minute or two, or then you wake up and maybe another thought, another dream, just very quick. So I was doing walking meditation, and as I mentioned yesterday morning in terms of watching these passing thoughts, I was doing the walking, and I was watching 
just these light thoughts in the mind passing. And at those times when I was caught in them, I realized it was exactly the same as being in the dream. After I had woken up and just went into the dream state for a moment, as I was walking and just being caught in the thought for a short time, just, you know, 10 seconds maybe or less, it was just like re-entering the dream state because of not being aware that I was thinking I was not awake to the thought. And then, as I mentioned, noticing that a lot of those thoughts were in some way self-referential, you know, planning, remembering, wanting, whatever. And so the phrase came to my mind, <coughs> I'm just dreaming myself into existence. You know, every time I was lost in that thought, lost in that dream thought, revolving around some, some idea of self, I was dreaming the self into existence. And that phrase, <laughs> it proved very helpful for me on the retreat. I just started using that phrase throughout the day. Oh, dreaming myself into existence. And it became like a watchword, watchwords, to stay more alert, more wakeful, so as not to be doing that, not to be creating the self in that way. It's through attention to the three characteristics that leads to disenchantment. to undreaming, and this is what frees the mind. And it's interesting just to consider how we can become mindful of the three characteristics on different levels, because it's possible to gain insight even on a macro level. For myself, I found that Reading history, I I really like to read history, because it's a powerful reminder (coughs) of just the changing, insubstantial nature of what we take to be so real and so vitally important in our lives. (coughs) And this often happens, you know, in different different histories, but one in particular stood out for me. I read this several years ago. At that time, it was a new book that came out on the life of Genghis Khan. Of course, I knew who he was, but I didn't really know much about his life. In the 12th and 13th century, you know, he created the uh, Mongol Empire. Unbelievably vast. Controlled almost all of Asia, part of Europe, a vast part of the earth was under the power of Genghis Khan. So, not an insignificant person. You know, <clears throat> unbelievable influence on his times. But before I mentioned him, how many of you have thought of Genghis Khan recently? <laughs> One, <laughs> good. <laughs> he doesn't come off into mind, although he is in my book, so if you read the book, <laughs> he might. It was just an example, you know, so important, so powerful. And, and time moves on and change and doesn't mean much. It's one of the reasons <clears throat> and things I love about New England, you know, it hasn't been quite the weather for it, but when you walk in, in a little better weather, when you walk through the woods and you see these miles and miles of stone walls, you know, just, just in the forest. And <clears throat> the foundation, the old stone foundations you know, of old abandoned houses. And it's so easy to conjure up thoughts of you know, the people, the farmers who built those walls and who lived in those houses you know, with lives as vital as our own with all the stories and all the dramas of being alive. And where are they now? What's left? In those stone walls in the forest. So all of this is highlighted by the great question of the Bodhisattva. <coughs> you know, in his, in his quest for enlightenment, when he questioned himself, why should I 
who am impermanent in every respect also seek that which is impermanent? And that's a profound question. What are we doing with our lives? What are we seeking in our lives? Is it just something else that's going to be you know, there for some time and then pass away? Like everything else. So a deep reflection on these truths really enlarges the context of our experience and it loosens the bonds of craving and attachment. We begin to just take a bigger picture of our lives, begin to consider, well, what really is important? What is of value for us? I mean, these are the questions that wake us up because it's so easy to be carried along in the momentum of our lives. We all are very engaged in, like Patrol Rinpoche said, said, you know, in the endless projects of our lives. And we just keep moving forward. And so a retreat like this is a powerful opportunity, but we want to bring it into our lives, that ability to just step back. What am I doing? Where am I going? What am I seeking? When we do this and when we are really watching our minds in these different aspects, <clears throat> sort of the difference between being on the roller coaster of a child's emotions. You know, happy one moment, sad the next, and just, you know, a child, minute by minute, can go through a wide range of emotions. And an adult's hopefully growing equanimity you know, and wisdom about the changing circumstances of life. Are we just in this endlessly reactive mode? Or are we learning some openness, some balance, some equipoise, you know, in the face of all the changes that life brings? In meditation, we can experience, experience the disenchanting truths of change, of unreliability, of selflessness, on much more momentary levels as well. I mean, I talked about kind of the sweep of history and you know, just really becoming aware of it on a macro level, but here we can see the change happening really on a micro level, even if it's not quite on the level of attoseconds. We can see so clearly the Buddha's pointedly enlightening teaching that everything that arises will also pass away. We can really see that you know, on a detailed and momentary level. As we experience the rapid rising and passing away, you know, as the mind settles in concentration and begin to see this flow of change more and more clearly, there comes a time when there's enough balance of all the factors where we're really seeing the rapidity of the rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. You know, and whether you think of it in terms of the aggregates or the sense bases, just moment to moment experience. And when the mind uh, drops into the momentum of that seeing, it's extremely, at first, exhilarating. It's like we've dropped down into another level of perception where the whole solidity of the mind-body is no longer there. And it's just this, just this flow of rapid change. And at this time, there's a tremendous exhilaration and joy and brightness of mind. It's so remarkable that people often feel like they are the only ones who have ever experienced this. You know, nobody else has quite touched this depth before. And the, the, the colloquial term for this stage is pseudo-nirvana, yeah, because it just feels so amazing to be seeing reality on this level. And it's at this point that the factors of awakening, you know, that Analyo has spoken about, which we've been so carefully cultivating, at this particular time, 
they're called corruptions of insight. Not because they've become unwholesome, but because they're so appealing that we become attached. We, we like this state. It's an extremely vivid, it's like the mind has become like crystal. And so it's extremely attractive and, okay, this is it, I finally got it. But with some wise guidance and continuous mindfulness, we then open to the next, perhaps one of the most critical stages in the meditative journey. And it's called discerning what is the path and what is not the path. Because very often people mistakenly think, oh, the path is for these states, these wonderful states of body and mind. And that becomes what we're aiming for. That becomes a huge roadblock. And so this juncture, when we discern <clears throat> what is the path and what is not the path, then we can keep going forward. And the path is not clinging, not clinging to anything. And so we move on and, and people then, as we keep refining our mindfulness and a perception of change, we may go through times of uh, a lot of despair and really go through some dukkha stages because we see everything just disappearing. There's no, there's just this constant dissolution. There's no place to take a stand. It's like being on the slope of a crumbling mountain. You know, we're, we're trying to find our footing and there's no place to find a footing. And so it can be very unsettling at that time. If we can stay mindful and balanced, you know, and just be aware of that, even when the mindfulness doesn't seem to be there because we can't really land on any object. But if we can just be aware and mindful of the whole, the whole experience, then gradually we come to a place of even more profound balance and peace. It's the place of equanimity, equipoise, <coughs> about all formations. And at this point, there's a strong momentum of mindfulness, and it's all happening by itself. At that time, very little effort or no effort is needed. It's just, we've built up the momentum to such a point that the practice is going by itself. The mindfulness is going by itself. At this time, in practice, craving is hugely diminished both because of the great balance of mind, but also because at this stage, pleasant feelings become less and neutral feelings become more predominant. So in this place of great equanimity and equipoise, it's just neutral feeling. And what's very interesting about this is that we find neutral feeling more satisfying than pleasant feeling because it's more peaceful. It's more refined. It said this place of sustained equipoise, sustained equanimity, is the foretaste of the mind of an arhant. But at this stage, we can abide, we can abide in this space for hours and hours. The mind is so peaceful and so effortless. Ajahn Jamnian, who's a great... Uh, Thai master. This is what he wrote. It's, it's about this place in practice. At some point, the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content and all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own a perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. So it's just in that space. It's just the process unfolding with this greatest ease. Sometimes, at this point, all objects fall away and there's just knowing. There's just consciousness there. But great care is needed at this point 
because there can be a very subtle attachment to the state, an identification with awareness itself. Now, and this becomes a very important and interesting place of investigation, noticing how easy it is to make a home of awareness and to have the sense of self settle right in. So this, this takes a lot of care at this point. So the question then is, how can we cut through the identification with knowing? Because in some way that's the last holdout of self. You know, we can be aware, you know, thoughts come and go, and sensations and emotions and all kinds of objects come and going, and yet still be identified with the knowing, creating a knower. Right? And so that's, that's the last holdout of the sense of self. So different traditions use different methods for cutting through this identification with consciousness, the identification with awareness. And in the tradition that I've done a lot of practice in, of Mahasi Sayadaw, this is what he wrote. At times the number of different objects may shrink to one or two, or all may even disappear. However, at this time the knowing consciousness is still present. In this very clear open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful. Yogis tend to delight in this clear, blissful consciousness. This is known as dhamma-raga, lust for dhamma, literally. At this time, it's simply, this awareness, this very clear, open awareness, simply has to be noticed, knowing, knowing, knowing. Whether we're using an actual mental label or not, it's to be mindful of the knowing so as not to get caught in identification with it. From another side, in another description, uh, Ajahn Mahabhava, who was a great Thai monk, re reputedly an Arhant, and unusual in the sense that he's one of the few monks who actually described his moment of awakening. He described the process, so it, it's very interesting to see uh, what was happening at that level of experience. He reminds us that kind of in these very subtle states of mind, subtle realms of awareness and ease, a really great care is needed because we can easily mistake these very refined, very peaceful states of mind for the mind released. And so we have to make some very wise discernment. So this is Ajahn Mahabhava describing uh, his process. Once when I went to practice at a particular temple, Wat Do, the problem of unawareness, ignorance, had me bewildered for quite some time. That's interesting what he goes on to say here. The problem of ignorance had me bewildered for quite some time. At that stage, the mind was so radiant that I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant, in full force. This radiance is the ultimate counterfeit, and at that moment it's the most conspicuous point. You hardly want to touch it at all because you love it and cherish it more than anything else. In the entire body there is nothing more outstanding than this radiance, which is why you are amazed at it, love it, cherish it, dawdle over it, want nothing to touch it. But it's the enemy king, unawareness. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself to the point of explain, 
exclaiming deludedly in the heart without being conscious of it, why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. This too I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone were speaking in the heart, although there was no one there speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. That's what it said. You know, so in the midst of this unbelievable radiance of mind, where it would be so easy to just dwell there, he saw as the enemy king. You know, as long as there's a center or point of a knower anywhere, any identification at all, that's the agent of rebirth, of birth, of samsara. So this is the critical point for all of us at every stage of our practice, even before we're quite, you know, at that stage. As long as there is identification with anything, we're creating the sense of the knower, then we're still within the realm of the conventional conditioned mind. So we have to cut through that last identification. There are some Tibetan and Zen teachings which also offer methods of cutting through this identification in perhaps a more immediate way. And it may be just for the moment, you know, it may not be uprooting that identification, but even in the momentary way, it can show us the possibility of experiencing this mind-body without a sense of the knower, without being the knower. So in some of the traditions, the method suggested is to actually look for the mind. Can you find it? Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you touch it? Can you taste it? So we'll do a little experiment now. I'm going to ring the bell. And when you hear the sound, see if you can find what it is that's knowing the sound. Very interesting. The sound is being known. There's no doubt about that. The sound is being known. But can we find what it is that's knowing it? There's nothing to find, and yet the knowing is happening. So Tulku Ergin kind of <laughs> said, the not finding is the finding. Right? It's the experience of not finding. And again, this is not about the metaphysics of anything. It's just a way of cutting through the identification with knowing. That's all. You know, when we see there's nothing to find, and it's just sound being known. I often suggest people reframe their experience in the passive voice, you know, in walking, just movement being known, sound being known, thought being known. Because in that grammatical construction, there's no subject. And so it reframes our experience in a very dharmic way. And you might just practice with that, you know, you walk, just reframe it. Oh, just the movement is being known. And then we ask, known by what? Okay. There's, just in the same regard, there's a wonderful Zen exchange between Bodhidharma and the person who was to become his disciple. Uh, his name was Hueka. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful dialogue. And 
as you listen to it, it's easy to listen to it as a Zen witticism. But it's actually a profound teaching. You know, and so try to put the amused mind aside and just see if you can really get what it's about because Hueka got enlightened. You know, so so Bodhidharma is sitting in his cave, you know, for however many years he was there. And Hueka comes all distressed and, and at first Bodhidharma doesn't want anything to do with him. But Hueka is very insistent. He says, you know, please teach me the Dharma. So finally after a lot of persistence Wake is saying, my mind is distressed, please pacify it. So Bodhidharma says, present me your mind and I will pacify it. Wake says, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. Bodhidharma, there, I've pacified it. It's right there. And sometimes, you know, knowing this dialogue, I can be just either on meditation retreat or just in my life, if my mind is just upset about something or whatever, I just remember this dialogue and I've compressed it. I just remind myself, already pacified. You know, in looking for the mind and not finding it, it's already pacified. And what is that pacification? There's no craving, there's no clinging. And so it's a very powerful experience right in the moment of what's possible. So in one way or another, you know, as equanimity and all the factors of enlightenment come into balance, the mind at some point opens to the unconditioned, the unborn. And these moments of opening in Pali are called Magapala, path and fruition. And the path moment, occurring just once for each stage of enlightenment, has the power, this path moment of opening to the unborn, has the power to uproot certain defilements, completely uproot so they don't arise again, and then weaken the others. And it's for this reason the Buddha described Nibbana in this very pragmatic way. And I really appreciate this teaching. He said, and what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. That's the power of those moments. It destroys different aspects of these defilements. And so this becomes the reference point really for assessing all our meditative experience. You know, we can really look to see, as we go along, are the defilements weakening? And perhaps at a certain point, some uprooted. That's the measure. We can have all kinds of fantastic experiences, but if they're not uprooting the defilements, if they're not weakening the greed and hatred and delusion, it's really not what all this is about. Because it's those forces which are the cause of suffering for ourselves and for so many others. So that's the mirror of mindfulness we can apply. You know, and we apply it over years of practice. You know, where we look back and say, yes, the defilements have been weakening. When the Buddha speaks about the end of dukkha, he's not simply talking about being in a good mood. That, that's, that's not what he's talking about. The uncompromising freedom of Nibbana is not dependent on conditions being a certain way. It's not dependent on conditions at all. You know? The Buddha used many terms to describe Nibbana, to describe this realization. And I just want to read some of them because just as we listen to different of the terms, we may begin to get just a fuller sense, 
really of what this ultimate reality is like, what the experience is. So this, these are the terms the Buddha used at different times to describe the unconditioned. He said, the unfashioned, the end, the true, the beyond, the subtle, the very hard to see, the ageless, the undecaying, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, Nibbana, the unafflicted, the pure, release, non-attachment, the island, a shelter, a harbor, a refuge, the ultimate. Yeah, so. just from hearing that, we can get a sense of its ultimate value. So however each of our paths unfold, as we develop these factors of awakening and deepen our understanding of the Four Noble Truths, our minds increasingly incline towards this highest peace. And Bhikkhu Bodhi he really had some wonderful words about our journeying on the path. He said, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. So we've all started and all we need to do is continue. And our path leads to the actualization, the realization of this third noble truth, the end of dukkha. Let's just sit for a moment or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.